Thank you for your patience. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to go over the whole chapter. Um, and you're thinking, oh, that's like 20-something verses. We're going to be here for forever. Well, I don't think that's going to be the case. Because um, much of what we said last week as we went through Hebrews chapter 8 would correspond with Hebrews chapter 9. Go figure. You know, this is a letter. And it's meant really to be read in one sitting. And so what has been written before walks right into what follows um, again and again, and we'll even see that as we walk through chapter 10, Um, and I think we're going to spend two or three weeks in chapter 10. So Hebrews chapter 9, as we begin this morning, ask you the question, do you have a clean conscience before God? Do you have a clean conscience before God? What we're going to see this morning, what this text is going to help us to understand is that we can have a clean conscience before God. We can all have a clean conscience before God, and God desires that we have a clean conscience before Him. So let's read Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read the whole chapter and then go back and see a few points here. So Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, 
He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we come back to that question we started with, and you saw in there a couple times where the conscience was referenced. How can we have a clean conscience before God? We're going to look at, at sort of three different ways um, in which we may not have a clean conscience before God. So the first one we're going to look at, we, we cannot have a clean conscience before God if we have unrepentant sin in our lives. Now this goes for the saved and the unsaved. The unsaved never would have repented in the first place. But those who are saved, if you do not repent, if you are intentionally sinning, knowing that you're sinning and not doing anything about it, how then can you have a clean conscience before God? And so we see there in verse 7, he mentions unintentional sins. We'll start reading back in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, it, it wouldn't make any sense. Our God would not be a just God if we were able to continually offer sacrifices for sins that we kept committing intentionally. If we never even meant to follow after God, why then would we go through the motions of sacrificing if the sacrifice didn't mean anything? The sacrifice doesn't mean anything if we intentionally sin. If we say, this is a sin, and then we say, I don't care, I'm still going to do it. Or, in the case of omitting, you know, well, I know it's a sin if I don't do this, but I'm still not going to do it. In either of those cases, it doesn't make any sense, and, and I think this is just a logical understanding that most of us will have initially w without any training, that if I know something to do and I don't do it, and I do that repeatedly, and I have no guilt, I have no concern, I have no intent to actually change anything, then how is it that I would expect God to care about my external actions then of trying to overcome that sin. And so what the 
high priest did once a year was he didn't offer sins for the intentional, he didn't offer sacrifice for the intentional sins of the people. He offered a sacrifice for the unintentional sins. You see, and in this regard, we have to recognize that it is difficult as you walk closer and closer to God, you then realize how much more and more you are a sinner. As you get closer to God, you realize how much more you do not deserve to be anywhere near Him because He is so different than you. He is so different than me. He is so perfect and so holy that the more I see of Him, the more I see of myself and how unclean I am, how much of a sinner I am, how much in my life there is that should not be there. And so it's difficult because the more I know God, the more I know my sin. And the more I know my sin, man, yikes, ouch. It's tough. And we're going to keep talking about this idea. But in case we're not convinced of my little proposition here from Hebrews 9, turn over just a few pages, if you will, to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, it's to the right, just a handful of pages probably, maybe 10. 1 John chapter 1, and starting in verse 8. Again, John is writing to Christians so that they might know that they are one with Christ. 1 John 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, if you think in your mind, if you remember back to what we've already read in Hebrews chapter 9, this is basically the same thing that the author of Hebrews says. And he says it in verse 15, therefore, talking about Christ, he is the mediator of a new covenant. It's the same idea. We have someone, we have a go-between. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but as you saw there in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, how can we say that the truth is in us? We are sinners. We have sin. And so we have to recognize that and confess it. And confessing is not just, I acknowledge it, but it's an acknowledgement coupled with an attitude, an action, a response of, I no longer want to do these things. It is sin, and I don't want to be that guy who does that sin. I want to be like Christ. I want to be made holy. I want to be different because Christ has paid for that sin. And I don't have to pay for that sin anymore. And I don't have to live that way anymore. But we can't have a clean conscience before God if we say that we don't have sin. Or we say that we have sin and I don't care that it's still there. It's the same similar argument. We can't have a clean conscience before God. Someone, if they never acknowledge their sin, if they never repent in any capacity, as Peter told them in Acts chapter 2, what we read before, you know, the people said they were cut to the heart after Peter's sermon. They said, well, what are we supposed to do? What, what should we do then? And Peter said, 
repent. See, you've got to acknowledge that and turn from it. Turn to God. Trust in Christ. So there are those who have never repented of their sin, but then there are those of us sometimes at certain points in our life where we have sinned and we're not living in a repentant attitude. We are not confessing those sins one to another. We're not trying to be any different. And so what good are we in those moments? How can we have a clean conscience, a clear conscience in those times? The second thing we can look at here in Hebrews 9. Let's keep reading. Pick it up in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 9. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So, one of the next things that we're going to see is we cannot have a clear conscience if we are unrepentant, if we have unrepentant sin in our lives. And the second things we are going to see is we can have a defiled conscience, a seared conscience, or a weak conscience. Now, a couple other verses we're going to look at. Um, This can be both, again, unsaved or saved people. You can have a defiled. You can have a seared conscience. You can have a weak conscience. And you can be unsaved and have these things. But you can also have a weak conscience if you're saved. So first with the unsaved. Look at 1 Timothy 4. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, if I can get there. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving, by those who believe and know the truth. So your conscience can be seared. Your conscience can be made to the point where it no longer cares in any capacity whether or not what you're doing is right or wrong. Your filter for understanding truth and falsehood, your capability of realizing what is right and what is wrong in God's eyes no longer matters in any capacity. Your conscience is seared. It can be defiled. Titus 1. Titus 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They're defiled. Again, we're talking about the unsaved. They have been led astray by liars, as it says in 1 Timothy 4. They have believed false things. They have believed that things that they do are okay in and of themselves. They have believed the lie that their works can make them into something that God never programmed, that God never planned, that God never intended. They depend on gifts and sacrifices. They depend on themselves. They depend on not Christ to make themselves right with God, that or they just don't care in any capacity 
who they are before God. They are deceived. We can be deceived. Our conscience can be wrong. It's not just having a clean conscience. It's having a clean conscience before God. Our consciences can be wrong. They can be seared. They can be defiled. We can be deceived. And so we must have a clean conscience, not because of the conscience in and of itself, but because it's a clean conscience before God, understanding Him rightly. And so following after Him well. And so it is a potential for us to not know any better about these things that God has written of in His Word. And this is the case where you can have a weak conscience. In 1 Corinthians 8, this is referenced several times about having a weak conscience. And just a second of background, Paul is talking about food offered to idols. And the Corinthians, they were surrounded by temples. And these temples, they worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols. And so there, was, there would be food that would be offered to these idols. And the food offered to idols would then be sold oftentimes in the marketplace. And so the question was, is it okay for us as Christians to eat this meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And some had weak consciences and they didn't know that it was still okay because these idols really aren't anything at all. They don't really exist. They're nobody. They're not gods. And so it doesn't matter if they're offered to idols or not. But there are those in Corinth, there are those that Paul is writing to who don't know any better. And he says that their conscience is weak. And we, if we have a stronger conscience, if we know better, we should be patient with those who have a weak conscience. We should be loving toward them. We should care about them and say, well, if you don't think that I should do this, or if in me doing this, this is going to mess your faith up, it's going to completely throw you off kilter, and your understanding of God and His Word, then I am going to do what I can to not be a part of throwing you off of the path of Christ. I'm, I'm not going to want to make you go astray. I'm going to want you to be who God wants you to be. And so I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to be loving toward you. I'm going to be conscious of where you're at. 1 Corinthians 8, read verses 7 through 13. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed." the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You see the care and concern that Paul has for those with a weak conscience. Now, he tells us he's writing to those who have a strong conscience, who know better. He's telling them to be patient. But I think in some capacity... There's also a desire for Paul and for the people in Corinth to teach those who have weaker consciences the truth, to help them to realize that these things aren't as big a deal as they make it out to be. But walking alongside them patiently and not 
causing them to stumble and trying to do what you can to lift them up out of their misunderstanding of God and His ways and the ways of this world and how those two things meet. So we can have a weak conscience. Saved people can have a weak conscience. We read in there how brothers were defiled. Fellow Christians could be defiled. And so you can, as a Christian, have a weak conscience. Your conscience can be mistaken. Now, I brought that up in those verses in Hebrews 9 because, well, you know, we talked about gifts and sacrifices to God as opposed to idols. But those sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It can be that we think the things that we do make ourselves right with God. It can be that we think that we are in control of being right with God. But this is where Christ has stepped in and where we must look at the fact that it is Christ who gives us and keeps us with a clean conscience. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. This leads us to our third point, roundabout. We can not have a clean conscience before God if, in fact, we have not trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, Christ as the one perfect once-for-all sacrifice. When this writer is writing to his audience, he is trying to convince them, to encourage them, to realize that as they were going through this Old Testament sacrificial system, it was never meant to perfect the people's hearts and minds. The fact that they had to do it every single year meant that this sacrificial system was never going to be perfect. If it had to continual, continually be done over and over and over again. So as soon as the once a year, the Day of Atonement, this high priest would go into the temple as described by this author. He would go in there. He would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He would do what needed to be done. But as soon as he came back out, you're kind of making preparations for next year. Well, who's going to be the high priest next year? Well, who's going to go in next year? I mean, it never was actually fully taken care of. There was just an appeasement. This was meant to be a picture of what was to come fully and finally. And that full and final sacrifice came Jesus Christ himself. And that's why it starts there in verse 11 in our text in Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have now come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, as we referenced last week, he entered, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. How is it an eternal redemption? Because he lives forever. And so the blood that he now has shed on the cross and that he lives with in his body still, his resurrected body, as he's entered the heavenly temple, the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly tent, he remains there constantly being the forever eternal way of redemption for us. 
And if we have not trusted that, there is no way that we can have a legitimate clean conscience before God. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see there, from dead works. These works were never meant to be the end-all, be-all, but Christ is the end-all, be-all. They were meant to point to a greater sacrifice, and they pointed towards Christ. And we look back now and see how it pointed towards Christ. Our works can do nothing more than make us externally clean. Read there again in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... Of the flesh, that's the outside. There's the flesh and the spirit. The spirit's the inside, the, the internal, the eternal. The flesh is the outside. It's the corrupt. It's the messed up. And so what those sacrifices did is they helped you feel good on the outside. They were representative of the outside, but they were pointing to a deeper reality on the inside that they could not get to. Only Christ could get there to the inside. And so they perfected the conscience only from the outside. But on the inside, your conscience is an inside thing. It's an internal thing. And Christ has come to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We've moved from dead works to service. Now, I mean, aren't works service? This is kind of confusing for me because I think of, when I think of service, I think of like doing works, doing good deeds. You know, but what we've moved from Dead works to service. Well, they're not really service if they're done in such a manner as to expect God to bless us because we've done it. We serve God out of joy and gratitude through the work of that which only Christ could do and did do on our behalf for us. And that's why he starts there in verse 15, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. We cannot get ourselves to the point of being right with God. Only Christ could do that. He is the go-between. He's the mediator. He's the bridge. He's the intermediary. He is the negotiator. He is the peacemaker between God and us. If we are to go to God, we can't go to Him without Christ between us. We have to depend on Christ. As we look back at what Christ has done through His perfect life, through His perfect sacrifice on the cross, and now we look at His perfect ministry in heaven, we also look forward to when He's going to return to fully and finally redeem us. And that's how He ends verses 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor is it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we look forward to when he's going to come back and fully and finally redeem us. In this whole idea of having a clean conscience, I would commend to you this book by Andy Nacelli. It's called Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It, and Loving Those Who Defer. We can have different consciences. We can be convinced of different things, and we can still get along with each other. But there are certain things that we must get right. There are certain things that we have to agree on to be Christians. There are certain things that only make sense one way. And so what we have to agree on, how you can be right with God, can only be through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. The substitutionary atonement, the giving of Christ's life for us, and how you remain right with God is not through all of your wonderful deeds and actions. It is continually through, still, what He has done for you, what Christ has done for you. What makes you right with God are not your good deeds. As you live this life as a Christian, your conscience should not be okay with all the external actions that you take that you think make you right with God. They didn't make people right with God in the Old Testament. It was still an inward transformation that had to take place. It was still living by faith. It was still acknowledging that God was the one who would be able to save me. How was Abraham called righteous? It was through his faith. It wasn't through his works, but he lived out his faith and he worked it. He worked it. I mean, James chapter 2 talks about faith and works. If you have faith, you're going to work. You're going to do things. But those works don't make you right with God, either in the past, now in the future, or, or now, or in the future. Those works don't make you right with God. They don't keep you right with God. Only Christ has made you right with God, and only Christ keeps you right with God. And so as we live this life, we look to Christ. When I have sin in my life, we read in 1 John 1, if I have sin, I recognize that He is faithful and just to forgive me. Why is He going to forgive me? Is He going to forgive me just because I confess it? No, He's going to forgive me because Christ has paid for that sin. He's going to forgive me because Christ has done something about it. Not because I've done something about it, but because Christ has. And so when I know that my conscience is not clean, I don't say, God, give me a clean conscience. I'm going to do all this stuff to make it up to you. No, we look to Christ. We look to Christ as our mediator, as our continual mediator, as our continual go-between, as a continual bridge that we walk on to get to God rightly. See, this is... These are some dangerous truths that are held here, especially at the end of Hebrews chapter 9. 
as you think about for yourself, where would I be if I did not know Christ? I only have this one life to live. And after that life comes judgment. And I am, as a Christian, gonna, I'm going to have to give an account for everything that I do. God does expect me to be holy like He is holy. He has called me to be holy like He is holy. He has called me to walk in His ways. He expects me, He calls me to be set apart, to be different, to obey Him, to honor Him. And when I don't, when I do sin, I am going to have to answer for those things. I am going to receive blessings for the things that I have done. You will receive crowns for the works that you have performed in faith. But those things are done in faith, knowing that Christ is the one who has afforded you the ability and the opportunity to accomplish any of those. And we can deceive ourselves. And so we've got to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves. People all over this town, people all over this country and all over the world have deceived themselves into thinking that they are right with God simply because they chose to be right with God. They think they're okay with God because logically it's what makes sense to them in their minds. If, if I think I'm okay, then I'm okay. They don't think they need Christ. They, they don't think He's worthwhile. They don't, they don't think it's necessary. And what we have to recognize as Christians is that we have been called to make disciples. We have been called to encourage and to grow and to spur each other on toward love and good deeds, those who do know Christ. And we've been called to proclaim the message of the gospel to those who don't know because they only have one life, one opportunity, this life here and now, to recognize, to acknowledge that Christ is the only thing that can make them right with God. And so, are we proclaiming that message to those who are going to be judged? And you see, if you're not a Christian, you are going to be judged and you are going to be found wanting. And there is eternal punishment waiting for you, waiting for those who do not know Christ. And so we've been called. God has granted us the opportunity, the ability, the power with His Spirit inside of us to proclaim that message so that people might know that even though they might think they have a clean conscience before God, that they don't if they haven't yet trusted Christ. And so we plead as ambassadors for Christ. We plead with people to know Christ. We are His ambassadors. Be reconciled to God. But you can only be reconciled to God through Christ. And so we preach Christ and Him crucified. And that's all that we care about because that's what we know is everything that we have needed and continue to need to have become right with God and to continue to be right with God is Christ. So we proclaim Him. So we make it our work 
to proclaim him. And so I pray that we would be diligent to pursue that because there are those who are going to be judged and they're going to be lacking. And in this life, we do have struggles. As Christians in this life, we do recognize that this is a tough business of having a clean conscience, of living without sin. We can't do it perfectly. And so when sin comes into our life, we think, we look forward to, as he ends this chapter, we look forward to when he's going to come again. We eagerly expect, we eagerly wait for him. We sung about that last week. Like a bride waiting for her groom, we are waiting for him. We are waiting for him to come back. We are hoping for him to come back soon so that we can be rid of these sinful bodies that constantly want to do our own things our own way. But our spirits know that there is so much more, that God's ways are so much better. And so there are a couple of a hymns that are great to think about, and, and we've sung them. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away anybody else's sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What, what can make you whole again? Right? What, what can keep you right? What can make you whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Before God's throne, my plea is Christ. He's my strong and perfect plea. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. This is who Christ is. He is my only plea. Is He your plea? Has He been your plea in the first place to repent, to know Him, to trust Him in becoming a Christian? Does He continue to be your plea in this life as a Christian? And do you make it seem like He really is through your words and through your actions to those who don't yet know Him? To encourage them to respond to this truth. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the opportunity that we have to know you, to know you rightly, to have clean consciences, but only because of what Christ has done. He has purified us. He has made us whole. He has put us into a right relationship with you, into fellowship with you. As he continues to sit at your right hand, So we look back and we remember the work that He has done for us. The sacrifice that He made in His own body on that tree for us to satisfy Your wrath. To gift us, to impute to us His righteousness. To credit on our account the perfect life that he lived. God, help us to think of these things, to dwell on these facts that should bring so much hope and joy to our minds, to our hearts, to our consciences that 
when we have sinned, that we would confess it and we would know that we have a faithful and just high priest who is interceding for us day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, second every second of the day. God, you have not left us. You have not forsaken us. He is there by your side in that heavenly tent, in that heavenly tabernacle. Help us to dwell on these facts and help us to remember and to look forward to when he is going to return. And so we pray that you would come, Lord Jesus. Save us from these bodies that constantly want to sin. We want to be fully like you. We want to be holy in everything. So help us, God. We thank you for the gift of your son to make that possible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.